Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Vassal Chowdhury, Assistant Professor of Law and History and Hanley Institute Sustainability Scholar at the University of Dayton. We will discuss his article, Property as Rent, which will be published in the St. John's Law Review. So welcome to the show, Fassel. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad that uh, Ramsey Woodcock introduced us uh, in relation to the uh, Inframarginalism conference that he ran at UK a while back. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this paper, which introduced me to a bunch of concepts and distinctions that I was not previously familiar with. And one big one for me, which I'm hoping you can help listeners understand, is you talk about the difference in economics between classical and neoclassical concepts of property and rent. So I, I wonder if you can help us kind of understand what that distinction is and, and why you think it's important and helpful. Sure. That's a good, um, uh, really important question. I think maybe one thing I should do to begin with is um, distinguish uh, my assertion that there is a concept of property as rent embedded in classical economic thought um, uh, as distinct from how property is thought about in the neoclassical tradition. I should distinguish that claim from a claim about the differing conceptions of rent since the overall argumentative move I make in the paper is that the classical concern with identifying as in an identity between landed property and it being capable of as an asset and it being capable of producing a stream of rent um, makes for an implicit concept of property other than just the normal concept of consumer preference, a means for consumer preference satisfaction, as well as a key kind of institution for economic growth and development. Within the classical tradition, I'm arguing that there's an implicit concept of property embedded in the shadow of the, the idea of property as property's positive connotations, the shadow being the negative wealth siphoning connotation, connotations of the concept of property insofar as land can be identified with rent. So that's my argumentative claim in the paper. As for the wider, the, the more explicit differences there are between rent ideas in the classical versus neoclassical tradition. Um, I think maybe the best way to think of that is to back up and talk a little bit about some other broader differences between the classical and neoclassical traditions. Now in uh, rehearsing some of the differences I characterize, uh, espouse in the paper to use to characterize the two traditions, I should say one should probably not make too much of the difference between classical and neoclassical insofar as part of the lore that I'm trying to resist in the paper of the neoclassical tradition is, I think, casting itself as being a revolutionary point of change from the classical. So the neo and classical obviously sketches a link between the two, but it also is an assertion about a categorical difference. And I wouldn't want to indulge that assertion too much, but it is 
obviously nonetheless a useful heuristic. In the paper, uh, I discuss four difference key differences, I think, between the two traditions. And maybe to set the stage for anyone not familiar with the term neoclassical itself, this is usually a tag that's used to describe changes that started accumulating around the 1870s in economic thought, uh, primarily linked to the independent discovery, so to speak, of the principle of marginal utility by a series of economists on the European continent. This was, in retrospect, if not necessarily exactly at the time, seen as a major breakpoint with the classical tradition economics that was increasingly defined in terms of thinkers starting at the very least from Adam Smith, extending through people like Thomas Malthus, David Ricardo, um, Marx you could include in some ways in that tradition, although people interested in Marx would probably follow Marx's own take that he's resisting and critiquing that tradition. So that could be an open historical question. Then, of course, um, a bunch of other economists, John Baptiste Say, I mean, we don't have to just stink, uh, stick to the Anglophone world. Um, but if the neoclassical revolution came, let's say, starting in the 1870s as linked to the discovery of the principle of marginal, um, uh, marginal utility, um, how would we further distinguish it from the classical? So in the paper, the first major difference I touch on is the distinction that was a staple feature of classical thought as concerning natural versus market price. For most of the classical economists, uh, this distinction between natural and market price, sometimes this was also further elaborated into a distinction between natural price versus something else that was identified more fundamentally than that as value, and then all of both of them for market price. Uh, the distinction between natural versus market price um, speaks to the way in the classical tradition for many of these thinkers, supply and demand isn't the fundamental aspect of economic behavior. There's a live question for Ricardo, for Marx, for Smith, as concerning what the nature of value is. So natural price for them was considered to be something linked to the cost of production. And of course, supply and demand did have a role in that, but it was usually thought of as being a corrective or a modifier that made for the market price that came into function over and above the tether that basically bound price more fundamentally um, that could also be identified in terms of natural price. Uh, connected to that, the second uh, point I go over in the paper is a uh, distinction between production versus exchange. For the classicals on the whole, I argue that, and it's not unconventional to argue that their concern is much less with remodeling all economic behavior as a variety of exchange-based consumption. For them, there was a much more distinct um, uh, line to draw between productive activities and then a sphere of exchange and circulation. Uh, this also links back to the idea of natural and market price insofar as on the whole, one might say, for a lot of the classicals I'm concerned with, their, their concern is with the distribution of class shares of income. So less they're thinking of, in a sense, the what we would now call the factors of production, less simply as 
isolated factors and more as factors that correspond to actual social classes in society. So they're very much concerned with the question of how is wealth and value being produced and where is it coming from? There is obviously a certain metaphysical overtone to those questions that by the 20th century increasingly is dropped from economics. Um, it does live on in various ways and it is very much tied up with concerns about labor versus utility theories of value but production versus exchange was another key distinction. Um, over and above that, a third that I discuss in the paper is the different conception of profit in classical versus neoclassical thought. In neoclassical thought, profit, of course, exists, but profit is supposed to be an ordinary return to the exertion of entrepreneurial effort. Profit is not supposed to be um, profit is not supposed to, profit is not supposed to be something excessive sort of beyond that. In other words, in essence, in the neoclassical vision of general equilibrium, there's profit, but, uh, it's going to be just enough to get the enterprise to remain extant as a going concern. A fourth distinction that I build on from that is the distinction coming, I think, to your question proper, the distinction between profit and rent in neoclassical thought. I suppose the best thing maybe to say about this in summary, going back to the notion of a classical theory of rent versus the neoclassical theory of rent, is for the classics, starting especially with Ricardo, rent was identified as an unearned return. With John Stuart Mill, this would go on to become called more famously uh, the unearned increment because part of what the classics are doing is they're drawing a distinction between productive and unproductive activity. Um, and only certain activities they think are producing real value. So the landlord, for example, to them, the, the 19th, 18th century gentry is a pure rentier who's earning a return off the scarcity value of land rather than exertion and effort. For Ricardo in his major texts on principle of political economy and taxation. One of the reasons taxation is so important is because it's the concentration of the policy focus of his concerns. If landlords are earning an unearned increment, again, that's Mill's phrase more than Ricardo's, but if landlords are earning an unearned increment, it stands to reason that one could tax landlord returns without it having other deleterious effects on economic growth more generally. So profit for the profit for the classicals is distinct from rent um, along those connotative avenues. With the neoclassicals, this relatively hardline distinction between profit and rent starts getting uh, dissolved in significant ways, and rent starts losing in major ways its negative connotations. Mm. So maybe you could get into that distinction in a little bit more detail because I think it's really important and helps to kind of frame the sort of metaphorical or conceptual move that you're making more broadly in in the paper. So like how does a kind of neoclassical view conceptualize the idea of rent? Because they use the same word, but it seems to mean something really different, both in terms of like kind of technically, but also more normatively as well. Instead of 
where exactly is that shift happening? What's the difference in meaning that's really at stake? And how does it f- affect the conceptualization of property and really in your paper, I think more specifically real property? Yeah, I think so. that's a great question as well. I mean, there's various thinkers we might start tracing the the slow evolution of the concept to. Um, one who I speak about in the paper, and I think somebody who's quite important to this overall is the American economist John Bates Clark, who's usually most associated with hashing out, sort of perfecting what would be understood as neoclassical income distribution theory. Um, for Clark, the difference, one starting point for Clark, going back to Ricardo, Ricardo, of course, did have an idea of diminishing returns. A central feature of his theory is that there's diminishing returns um, from uh, agriculture, and this sets off a whole cascade of other consequences for him. Um, but the lamentation that's usually given by the neoclassicals, again, we're speaking in blanket terms um, as a heuristic device, the lamentation that's, uh, in a sense, given about Ricardo among neoclassicals is that Ricardo doesn't really develop and generalize this principle of diminishing returns uh, uh, broadly enough. The principle of diminishing returns in Ricardo is not unrelated to the principle of diminishing marginal utility from each next instrument one consume, each next in- increment of consumption. That idea is taken up and in a sense ran with by the neoclassicals. For Clark, turning to rent in specific, Clark has an interesting, I quote an interesting passage from him where he's talking about ground rent, rent, rent associated with land as such. And he points out that um, uh, uh, in, in this passage, he's talking about how the classical economists used a concept of surplus that, in a sense, what he's doing with it is to restrict it um, and, in turn, expand the role of interest more than surplus in neoclassical theory. And Clark, to quote him, says, quote, ground rent we shall study as the earnings of one kind of capital goods as merely a part of interest. We see that wages and interests, though they are determined by the law of final productivity, are also capable of being measured exactly as ground rent has been measured. That is to say, the Ricardian formula, which describes what is earned by a piece of land, may be used to describe what is earned by the whole fund of social capital. All interest may be made to take the form of a differential gain or a surplus. So for Clark, rent is a kind of different, it's not an unearned increment anymore. It's a differential gain or surplus that's not really somehow special about land. He's saying if we think about all social capital, it functions the same way. It's a differential gain, and that's the new concept of surplus. So one can see the connotative associations with rent are not really negative. It's not the same kind of deleterious social effect associated with the decrepit landlord class. It's stepping back kind of what all surplus and gain in the economy is about. Of course, from Clark, there'll be a long history in the 20th century of further developing various notions and kinds of rents. Today, we speak of of Paratian rents. We speak of Schumpeterian rents. So it would be a little bit difficult to contain all of those in one story. But Clark is a major sort of turning point, I think we could say. So just to dig a little bit deeper on that, I mean, I really, I think this move from rent being like in a Ricardian sense, sort of a a pure cost to what you're talking about, this Clark sense where it's more neutral. I feel like in sort of a lot of modern, like neoclassical work, or even kind of, I mean, 
is it post neoclassically? And I don't know where are we in the in the history of economics at this point. I mean, rent has acquired, at least in many circles, a kind of negative connotation again, but it seems like it's negative in a different way than you're describing in the classical sense. Right. I suppose another um, uh, another point in this trajectory that would be worth touching on is uh, uh, public choice theory and the way a notion of rent-seeking comes in as a central feature of public choice theory. So in doing that, we would be jumping all the way, of course, to something closer to the 1960s, um, maybe late 1950s, 1960s, with the work of people like Gordon Tullock um, and Ann Kruger and a host of others. Um, for our purposes, for thinking about legal thought, um, uh, public choice theory, I think, could obviously be connected in important ways to law and economics. And so far as law and economics is, in a sense, an application of microeconomic theory to law. Um, but yes, the notion of rent seeking in uh, public choice theory, I think, is quite distinct. In a, on one hand, it's less economic, in a sense, or less economic theoretic. Um, on the other, it definitely does smack of a different variety of negative connotation than Ricardo's classical image, or for that matter, someone like Henry George going to American political and economic, uh, history of American political and economic thought, um, the, the negative connotations of land producing an unearned return. Rent seeking, I mean, I, I suppose we could also emphasize the seeking in the notion of rent seeking. Everyone's uh, in public choice theory, one major concern is trying to monitor who is seeking out rents principally from government largesse. Yeah. So there's a really big historiographical element to your paper, which we've been discussing so far, but there's also a big historical component. You talk about kind of historical changes in the way we've sort of done property, land, finance, and so on. I wonder if you could just like, just give a really potted version of that, like touching on the key salient points that you think are relevant to the sort of transition that you're describing and why you think the historiographical sort of account that you provide is helpful in understanding, understanding it. Yeah, sure. I think one, um, moving beyond the classical economists and bringing us, or even for that matter, public choice theory and uh, bringing us closer to the world of legal thought, I think uh, it would be important to connect the Ricardian heritage of rent theory to the project of the pro progressive era American legal economists who are, are, you know, connected obviously to the legal realists. So um, these are folks both explicitly we, whom we associate with law like John R. Commons. It's also other folks like Thorsten uh, Veblen um, uh, and of course uh, people like Robert Hale. Um, but in a sense, as I as, as my historical story in the paper continues beyond the classical economics economists, I suggest that the real inheritors of the Ricardian um, concept of, of rent as an unearned kind of return are the progressive era legal economists and their legal realist inheritors. They're very much concerned with how the modification of highly technical rules, legal rules in the legal system, including simply in the private law system, can be a way of recovering 
uh, Ricardian kinds of rents, even well beyond rents as they're accruing from land in specific. So they're concerned with a whole host of other property rights beyond just property in land. So I think in terms of connecting it to prox more proximal concerns to American legal thought, I think that would be an important dimension to develop. Of course, for me in the paper, uh, the historical interest is not the primary interest in a sense. The historical interest, tracing the story from the classical economists on through the uh, the progressive legal economists, is really a prelude to making a plea to recover an idea of of property connected to rent that I'm also asking, uh, uh, pleading for in connection to the recent renaissance in property theory that you could say has been afoot since the turn of the millennium. And here I point to two different strands that I think we can usefully, usefully summarize in the way folks like Carol Rose and Greg Alexander have summarized them under the rubric of a no, one notion of property as propriety and one notion of property as commodity. Um, uh, so connecting my concerns with rent to this renaissance and property theory, here's very much where I come back to what I initially started out by saying that the, part of the argument I'm making is that there's embedded in the classical economic tradition a, at least a third, at the very least, a third notion of property connected not to propriety, nor even commodity. Commodity, of course, is an economic idea, but property as commodity is supposed to be focusing on uh, uh, what I argue is very much a neoclassical vision of property as being a means and uh, uh, institution that's relevant to wealth maximizing, uh, uh, maximizing uh, behavior. Um, property as rent, I argue, is this third shadow conception that links us back to the wealth siphoning effects of property. Um, all of that, all of those historical concerns of the paper, um, including connecting it to the history of recent developments in property theory of simply the last 20 years, are all tied to wanting to recover this concept, conception of property as rent, this third conception of property in addition to property as propriety and property as commodity, in order to help us better illuminate what's been going on in our post-war economy, and particularly the ongoing importance of scarcity premiums from land and real estate, and specific in that economy. So in a sense, what, the, what I'm suggesting in the paper is as bold as the project of the American progressive economists was in trying to extend the Ricardian idea of rent beyond simply um, the analysis of unearned returns from land, as bold as that was, in our own world, it would actually be uh, of great significance simply to go back and take seriously the idea of land as a preeminent source of rentierist returns. And in order to do that in the paper, um, uh, the second half of the paper, this is where it turns from the historical concerns to thinking about the real estate economy as such. And this is the part of the paper that is less historical um, and more focused on um, an analytical and empirical effort to look at some of what's happening in the real estate economy. Well, so I got the sense from the paper that you think that the sort of neoclassical move 
in economics had an effect on or kind of helped facilitate in some ways kind of the development of the modern real estate kind of ecosystem, uh, especially the kind of highly securitized modern real estate ecosystem, and that there are some undesirable consequences that may have arisen from that sort of uh, rhetorical framing of what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, is that right? And if that's right, to what extent do you think sort of re-upping a more classical view like you described might be helpful? Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting question. I, I suppose I wouldn't want to lay that much at the door, especially as a historian who's interested in the uh, history of um, ideas. I wouldn't want to lay anything um, that distinctly causal at the at the uh, door of neoclassical economics. Again, especially since, as we started out by pointing, this is a blanket term. So, as much as I would lament the rhetorical use of the term to um, uh, to sort of toot the tradition's own horn. I would also, uh, I suppose, equally lament using the categorical term simply as a, a kind of a bogey to lay all sorts of ills at its door. Um, and but more specifically than that, I suppose, as far as the causal story goes, I mean, it, it would be difficult to, um, to, to explicitly connect you know, the rhetoric of neoclassicism or its larger explanatory framework to what's happening in the real estate economy. I do think where the, where we can connect things is insofar as it is cogent or reasonable to argue that we've lost something in losing the idea of property and property's preeminent form in terms of landed property in losing the preoccupation there once was with land as a source of rentierist returns. It also makes it also makes it easier for us to not to not confront how much our own economy, our own real estate economy, but therefore also really our own economy. I mean, real estate tends to be the biggest asset class in pretty much every economy today. Um, that would include the U.S. Um, so, insofar as our real estate economy and therefore our general economy is a site of rentierist returns from scarcity premiums associated with land to have lost our ability to see that for want of a notion like the notion of property as rent, I think is, um, is a real loss. Uh, I mean, are there ways that you think we could mobilize some of those ideas to highlight the ways in which the kind of terms in which we conceptualize our kind of economic language around our decisions about how to structure the real estate market and the securitization of the real estate market and who ultimately benefits from it and why might might be helpful in sort of reframing the debate. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, perhaps it's worth saying that the, the uh, focus of the second half of the paper um, is thinking about this gap between how we've been thinking about property and legal theory versus real world financial practice, trying to connect that to how we think about the last housing crisis and its aftermath um, in light of what empirically in the paper I document as the rise of a new form of mortgage securitization, particularly 
through securitizing uh, rental payment streams that are coming from single family homes that many of which have been bought up by institutional investors. And many of these homes are simply left over from the last housing crisis and packaged into new types of single family rental backed securities. The first of these SFRBSs, it's a form of the mortgage backed security was assembled in 2013. And the connected practice of hoovering up single family homes um, has been afoot since approximately the same period. So single family homes have definitely been purchased up and turned into a rental commodity. But on top of that, big institutional investors have been purchasing them up in part to insert into these new securitization deals um, in what the New York Times has recently called a process that's fueled a housing market recovery without a home ownership recovery. Um, but in thinking about this, the rise of this new form of securitization, the central policy question that the paper poses or tries to crystallize is to ask about how socially useful it is for our tax and our other laws to help push up real estate prices by encouraging various kinds of uh, real estate debt that can then be capitalized into mortgages and other interest payments and then recycled into new loans that are used to bid up property prices even further, which then tends to ne necessitate additional lending now, this might make sense if real estate debt was funding increasing costs of new construction or capital improvements, but it makes much less sense if it's going to bidding up the access price or site price of land. So this is why in the last part of the paper, the empirical analysis focuses on trying to disaggregate residential real estate prices into separate components for land price gains versus the cost of built structure. And from there, I try to show that the historical trend in the United States has been very much that land price gains have taken on, land price gains as in a return to the scarcity value of land sites have taken on an ever greater and more rapidly increasing share in the period from the post-war era on, and especially since the mid-1970s on. And in this respect, the last housing crisis um, um, uh, that touched off the Great Recession was not quite an event unique in history, as uh, Yale's Robert Schiller, the most respected housing economist in the country, um, called it. Uh, even well before the mid-2000s, we saw a substantial, substantial, um, just as substantial increases in the returns to land price as opposed to the price of built structures, the land price component, again, being associated with the scarcity value of land transpiring um, in the period from 1975 to 1990, the percentage increase by which uh, returns to real estate based in the land price component on sort of my analysis of the data, um, uh, the percentage increase in the returns to the land price component associated with site scarcity um, were actually higher than what we saw in the period from 2002 to 2006. Mm. Well, so from a kind of a big picture policy perspective, do you see this as primarily a distributional concern and efficiency concern or like a combination of both in some ways? Yeah, I suppose it would be a, a combination of both. I mean, uh, uh, 
consider strictly from a distributionist angle, I mean, there's uh, different policies, policy proposals we could entertain about how more specifically to handle securitization as such. Um, but another aspect of the paper is to more generally argue against increasing or rejuvenated reliance on securitization. I mean, obviously, it's as to how much systemic risk this poses the, to the economy, it's difficult to say, obviously, prospectively. Um, but even putting that question of systemic risk aside, um, it doesn't seem to me healthy to build an economy around uh, around drawing on scarcity rents from land. And I do think this is uh, thinking thinking about securitization critically is a window in on other types of questions we should be asking that connect in ways to classic questions about the housing market, housing and property market, ranging from concerns about NIMBYism and the problem with uh, the artificial, often legal constraints on increasing supply, the supply of new constructions or better land sites to various aspects of our tax policy to even larger issues about um, banking and the creation of money and how we regulate or control or think about that happening. So I think thinking about the full range of potential normative alternatives or normative proposals, this uh, uh, thinking, thinking, looking at the real estate market from the perspective one gets from the notion of property as rent um, can uh, be consistent with hashing out solutions that you might want to call distributive or maybe more focused on questions in of, uh, of efficiency or so on. Mm. Well, so in closing, Fassel, if the Biden administration were to call you tomorrow and say to you, we read your paper, we love your paper, lots of good ideas in there. What do you think we should be putting on our agenda? What should we think about? How should we be thinking about uh, you know, housing policy and property policy more broadly um, in light of your observations? What, in a nutshell, what would you tell them? I guess I would say that what the last last decade or more has taught us is that we have an affordable housing crisis everywhere in this country that can no longer wait, and we need to renew our way of thinking about housing. So first and foremost, I think I would suggest a rhetorical, discursive, cognitive shift to the idea that we need to be more open to what elsewhere in the world they would call social housing. That would be one idea. Second, we do need to be concerned about real estate and the financial sector as uh, rentierist areas of the economy that are not necessarily adding that much, um, but in a sense, siphoning wealth that could be productively invested elsewhere. Well, thank you so much. This is really helpful. I enjoyed the paper. I learned a lot from it, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to you about it. Thanks a lot, Brian. It's great talking to you. It's cold this morning. Three sticks of wood in the wood box and no flour in the barrel. I done told George a hundred times to stop trying to gamble. Oh my goodness, there's my rent man now. I don't know what I'm going to do. Please 
Don't put me out in the street I'm sorry, sorry, baby But that's the way it's got to be I worked hard to get your money Yes, but you didn't seem to get much fee Don't be so cold and cruel Come on in, maybe I can change your mind Nothing you say won't hardly move me I got to have cash on the line Poor girl for trying No, but I just don't have the time Take a peep into my bedroom See how bad it need repair Okay, you win, pretty baby You little old fine, cute booger bear I know something I'd say would move you Yes, I'm a fool, gonna use me, I don't care 